when we talk to leaders, we really, we try to expand their aperture a little bit to look at complexity that way and say like, we've got to think about how do we change people's mindsets about an, a problem or, you know, a vision that we're trying to cast or whatever, whatever the kind of change that we're trying to make so that we can then organize them differently in groups so that we can then cause the whole organization to operate differently. What will you do to unlock innovation? In today's fast-paced world, innovation might not be enough. Tomorrow's pioneers of change will need to be agile, able to adapt, and committed like never before. Your host, Santa Vending, invites you to listen in and join business leaders from around the world as they share their visions for success in our future business challenges. Welcome to Mind Innovation. I'm your host, Sana Vinding. I'm always excited to learn. And in today's podcast, we're going to talk about how do we change and how do we innovate? And that innovation requires change management. I want to welcome Caleb Gardner. He's a digital strategist with unique professional experience. He's a founding partner at 18 Copies, which is a strategy innovation firm focused on intersection of technology and culture. So welcome to the podcast, Caleb. Thank you. So glad to be here. Yeah. So let's jump in here, right? So organizations can't change if leaders can't change with them. That's right. But yeah. So what, what do we do? Well, I mean, it requires thinking about change on multiple different kinds of levels. And, and when you start studying things like complexity, which I got really into when I was uh, writing the, my book, you, you realize that we are really systems upon systems, right? Like we are individuals with our individual motivations and biases interacting with each other in groups, groups interacting with each other in organizations, organizations interacting with each other in society. Like we, it's, it really is mind blowing when you start thinking about it like that. Yeah. And so when we talk to leaders, we really, we try to expand their aperture a little bit to look at complexity that way and say, like, we've got to think about how do we change people's mindsets about an, a problem or, you know, a vision that we're trying to cast or whatever, whatever the kind of change that we're trying to make so that we can then organize them differently in groups so that we can then cause the whole organization to operate differently. Yeah. And if you think about an organization as a social construct, which we really, we, we don't get that a lot when we're talking about business every day. You know, we talk about financials, we talk about org charts, we talk about all these <laughs> things that exist basically just on paper. Yeah. But organizations are, are social constructs. They, they exist because we all agree to behave in specific ways. So we can, if we can get everyone to all agree to behave in different ways, that's yeah. how change actually gets made. Yeah. But so how does change get made now that with this big, I'll call it also like disruption, right? Now we're hybrid, mm -hmm. we're not hybrid, we're in the office, now we're not in the office. How does that affect everything? Yeah, it requires a lot more intentionality for one thing, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of people underestimated how much being in the office and being around each other reinforced cultural boundaries in ways that we didn't realize that they were reinforced just by the yeah. serendipitous interaction every single day. And for better and for worse, I think it has some positive side effects and some negative side effects. We don't have that reinforcement of in-person interaction in a remote environment, and we have it less in a hybrid environment. And so it means yeah. we have to be a lot more intentional about how we communicate with each other and how we, you know, communicate our intentions around productivity. Like here's what I'm doing today, communicate yeah. our needs to our managers or, or managing up to the people that, you know, will 
will decide our career paths. Yeah. Um, communicating where we're, we don't have clarity, right? Like it used to be really easy and not as embarrassing to just kind of walk over to your colleague and say, Hey, yeah. did you catch that? Did you catch it? I didn't really, I don't really get what, what was <laughs> now you're talking about first and saying, can I exactly because I have now a you, question, <laughs> which is like a form of documentation, right? Like you put something in Slack or an email, yeah. all of a sudden you're putting That's yourself out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's just a lot. It, there's a different level of, um, you know, uh, intentionality, but also just like, um, shame that could come along with it. Like yeah. it's just, the yeah. whole different dynamic. Yeah. Now it's vulnerable, right? To to suddenly, it's, it's easier to go ha- to somebody and just saying, hey, right? Yeah. Right. No traceability on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, wh- what are some, and I think already you're touching it. So one of some, one of some of the biggest trends you're seeing affecting the workplace right now? Yeah. I mean, we are definitely already touching on it. I mean, one that I think is related to that, that's super important is, um, in this time where the labor market is so tight and, and employees actually have a lot of power to be able to negotiate what they want from a salary or benefits or otherwise standpoint, yeah. you're actually seeing people use the, the breakdown of some of those cultural norms as negotiating points. And they're basically saying, um, hey, that m- monolithic office culture, when we went into an office, it didn't really work for me. You yeah. know, like I'm, I didn't really fit that mold. I tried to, I tried to pretend like I did when I was there, but actually I'm from a community that is somewhat marginalized or I come from a culture that is different or, you know, I'm, I didn't really feel like I fit in. And so I need X, Y, Z in order to be supported and be successful. Yeah. And so those, those conversations are starting to rise a lot more in this kind of environment. And it's actually super interesting because I think there's an opportunity here um, to, like build more equitable workplaces when employees have that much more power and and much more um, leverage over um, their employers who are desperate in a lot of ways to get them back working in person. Yeah. Um, I I don't always feel like the the case for working in person is strong. Like sometimes it's just, we know magical things happen when you're in the office. It's like, no, no, there's a lot of like, we don't, (laughs) that's not enough, right? Like we need to know why is this part of my job need to happen in the office? Why does this part of my job need to happen? Like, can, can this part of my job happen remotely? Like there needs to be a use case there beyond just, we want everyone in the same place because we're more productive. And and it shakes up the the process, right? Just saying, yeah, this is how we've done it all the time. If you have a meeting or a group meeting or an ideation or something, but it gives just a foundation now to say, yeah, but let's do it differently and then see what the outcomes is. But, but you have to be bold to do it as well. Yeah, and take that risk, right? But there are companies out there that, that's doing that. Um, I wanted to hear if you had some example of, you know, of change management failures, and and maybe we have to go a little bit back, right? Or maybe you have something that really fresh from your desk. But uh, if you could share something, <laughs> change management failures. I mean, I, there's so many more change management failures than there probably are successes. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, there's a McKinsey um, study that gets widely shared um, in my circles. And it's yeah. honestly, it started, I think it was like 10 years old, but they recently refreshed it that okay. said 70% of all corporate transformations fail to achieve yeah. their. Yeah. Objectives. I saw that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't mean that necessarily they weren't hundred percent successful or that they weren't, they didn't have some, you know, level of, of success in their transformation. It just means we put these objectives on paper and we didn't reach all of them, yeah. but it does 
the the cons- reasons why it's not successful are always consistent. It's like we didn't get enough people involved in the process, especially the people who are going to be most engaged in the change is going to affect their job the most. Yeah. We didn't communicate enough. We didn't train people well enough. You know, the, the, the so system. why don't we learn if it's been that for so many years? Right. Well, that's what's so fascinating about the moment that we're in with the pandemic is that this was, we talked, we talked about the future of work for how many years, like yeah. years and years. Now. I feel like we've been talking about the future, the future quote unquote of work since I've been in the workforce. Yeah. And yet we didn't realize how stagnant the actual work culture had become. Yeah. Like we, the pandemic was the first real catalyst to say, oh, these were our assumptions about work that were based on norms, not necessarily anything that was of value. And so we're the last couple of years have been having this fascinating conversation about what does, if work is divorced from a place, what does it actually need to look like? Like what's important about it? I think it's really interesting the moment we're in. Yeah. But will it, will it take that some companies, some companies will just say, we're going back to the structure we had before it's in the arts. And then there will be companies that saying, okay, this is an opportunity we're we're doing it and we will be bold you know so do you think the market will be that will there be like a big change so there will be the companies down here and then there will be the one that actually are leaping and and doing amazing stuff some right. of them maybe will failure it's not that but but like how do you will, think it will look like that landscape like will the structure of the companies in themselves become a competitive advantage will yeah. like companies that have a more flexible workforce be able to leapfrog over their competitors that force everyone back in I don't know. That's what's yeah. so fascinating about it. I mean, yeah. right now, the last statistics I've said is only somewhere around 40-ish percent. I've seen a few different statistics, but it always hovers right in that 40% range. Yeah. Of companies have made a permanent move to hybrid or like as they define like a permanent move to remote or hybrid. So that still leaves a big portion of the workforce that either want everyone back in or yeah. like have plans to bring everyone back in. Um, so will we have enough use cases in industries where there are head-to-head competitors where one made one choice and one made another. I don't know, but I, yeah. I'm definitely interested in where the yeah. research starts to knit out. It's probably a little bit situational, a little bit industry specific, but it's so interesting. It's so yeah. interesting. Yeah. Didn't Airbnb release and saying everybody can be remote, but every quarter we need to get together. Well, of course, Airbnb thinks that. <laughs> yeah. That's like the that's, that's like the way. cigarette industry, uh, you know, releasing <laughs> releasing research about the benefits of smoking. Like they want they want people out out <laughs> working remotely. Uh, use our website to find your next. You know, <laughs> exactly. <No. laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. It's it's going to be interesting to to see. So, so even, you know, if you are still in the office or if it's this hybrid or if it's, you know, totally remote, um, I think communication is always a key piece. Um, 100%. Yeah. So what, what have you seen that you can share to say, hey, this is actually something that worked really well or actually was like um, just, you know, just opened up that, that company or opened up that organization to communicate much better? Oh man, it, it, this is such an important point because uh, we underestimate the value of internal communication amongst our employees and staff and, and other stakeholders. We put a ton of priority on external communication, right? Yeah. Like yeah. marketing on and shareholder communication. Like we, we spend hours and hours and hours and then we'll release like one memo to our employees. And we think that that actually covers it. When in fact, <laughs> I, I've been making the case, we need to be at least as persuasive with our employees about 
we're moving in the right direction. We're making these decisions and we're making, and we're not making these and have some level of transparency and consistency and repetition internally, as much as we do externally for all the reasons that, you know, you're talking about, like we need to be able to bring people along. So we will actually, when we're doing engagements with our clients, build communication as a really important part of the tool set and start planning for communication up front. Like even before we start doing implementation plans and all of that, like technical and project management type stuff with big change initiatives, we'll, we'll make sure communication is a big part of that. And the ones that I've seen do it really well, usually start mapping out stakeholders. Like they'll be really intentional about mapping out stakeholders in the organization to make sure that we are, we are building persuasive, you know, messaging to our frontline people and our middle managers and our senior leaders and our, our board. And like, they will actually think about what's the value prop for all those different audiences and, and communicate to them differently yeah. and use different mediums. You know, it really depends on internal, you know, Slack groups, sometimes like actual board presentations, like of course the media matters, but thinking about all those audiences and what motivates them differently and what's the common vision across all of them about this change we are going through. I think yeah. it's really, really important. Yeah. But what about the the attitude? Because you you can always sometimes you can spot right the resistance. It's either mm-hmm. you know their their arms are crossed or they don't say anything or maybe they do say something. Yeah, um, and it's healthy. I think you need all you need every flavor when you do this kind of change because you need to listen to everyone. But but what have you seen when you like spotting this resistance? Um, how do you how do you hold their hand or how do you turn them to to actually to love the process or to love the change? Yeah. I, th- I agree with you. I think it's actually a really healthy part of, um, you know, discourse it, to be able to disagree in, in reasonable ways. And what I found is there's two types of detractors. And it's really important to try to try to distinct or, you know, really make it distinct about which kind of detractor you're talking about. Yeah. Because one is a really constructive detractor where it's exactly what you're talking about. Like we're trying to make sharpen this idea and make it better. I'm poking holes in how we are going to do this because I've seen it not work and I want to make sure it works. I want to understand the implications from me and my job and my team. Like they're asking questions, not to necessarily just be negative, but to, but to make the idea ultimately better to challenge it. And, and they're ultimately bought into the company's mission. They're just, they want to make sure we've thought through every angle. And then there are people that are unconstructive detractors. (laughs) <laughs> who are toxic, who have bought into all kinds of negative narratives about the organization and what's possible. Yeah. They're the kind of people that will repeat things um, that are just um, organizational defensive routines, you know, like, oh, that could never happen here. We will never be able to pull that off, you know, speaking in those kinds of absolutes. Yeah. Um, so it's really important to, to try to determine based on that person's motivation, like, why are they asking these kinds of questions? Yeah. Because the constructive detractors are really great to have at the table. Like, yeah. Those are people that we will target when we are thinking about who to build on a change team or a transformation team. We'll want those kinds of people because if you can b- get those people bought into some kind of big innovation initiative, they are the ones that are going to immediately convince everyone else. They're like, oh, if if you got Caleb on board, yeah, then this is definitely something with worth value because I know he challenged it and looked <laughs> at it from every angle. You know? Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, no. It it, it makes sense, it, but it takes time, right? 
it's not that you go in and then you flip the coin and then everybody is is on the same page. Oh, very um, much so. Yeah. Yeah. And it also helps with reflection and, and a lot of good, I'm, I'm sure, you know, conversations as well. But yep. you need to be a good moderator as well. So everybody can speak up and listen. Um, yes. And and it's also, I'm sure there's also people that will sit there and saying, yes, we are, we're in, but they're afraid of asking because they don't want to look stupid. Um, they yeah. just want to, right? So, so what, how do yeah. you... How do you get everyone? It, and it's back to the culture, and culture is like like it's like a buzzword, right? But but it is that you need to be comfortable, right? And be it's okay to ask, and it's okay not to say I don't know, um, yeah. and even know because I've been in the meetings, right, where somebody's saying just ask, right, and raise your hand, but you sit and you look around, and yeah, it's just not the same. So how do you yeah. again with with your experience? What have you seen um, to to get everybody? on the same level or getting everybody saying, Hey, you can ask the good and the bad and the stupid questions. Yeah, totally. I mean, you're, you're put putting the nail on the head in terms of why we think about change in, in terms of internal politics. Yeah. Right. Like, and, and we think about change in terms of power mapping in the organization, because ultimately we have different people with different incentives and motivations. And we have all of these cultural considerations that will kill something before it can get, you know, off the ground yeah. just out of the interpersonal dynamics and the interpersonal relationships in the organization. Yeah. And so we try to map those out and understand them. And then a lot of the, the work that we do, we actually have built our methodology around the work that I did with president Obama yeah. in community organizing, because a lot of the work that we did in community organizing was exactly this type of work, right? Where we find people who with leadership potential, we educate them about the issues, we have them go out and train other people about the, the issues and how to make the kind of change they want to see. We organize people in communities around making that kind of change. We get um, you know, the leadership and the people on the ground in conversation about what needs to happen. You yeah. know, these are all things that we've learned from the political world, but actually, especially when you're talking about a large enterprise are still applicable. Yeah. And going back to that concept of an, a large organization as a social construct, yeah. we have to apply that kind of social thinking. And, and what's really fun for me coming from a digital background is we can amplify that and amplify the impact using technology and data, yeah. but it's still ultimately a people problem. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's good. You can't automate everything. What about, yeah. So, so what I've seen as well, and maybe it's observations, but I, yeah, I also felt it, that this change is coming. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, to, and, and an organization needs to be clear as well to say, we know this is going to take, it's going to shake up the organization. It's also going to take time for everybody to participate. So yeah. you have your job responsibility, right? This is what I do every day. And then suddenly, right, this needs to, to fit in as well. Yeah. Um, have, have you seen, uh, yeah, how do I ask it? Because you want to succeed, right? We don't want to go under that statistic and just saying oh, it didn't work. Bummer. Um, how, do you, how do you get an organization or the leadership, right? To say, hey, you need to be aware of what it really takes. It's yeah. not just a side project or it's not just that side saying, yeah, okay, from, from four to five, that's why you spend time on it. How do you get realistic about what it takes to, um, to, to succeed? 
Oh God, we could spend a whole podcast on just that question, right? Because there's not there's not an easy answer. I mean, it's it's yeah. leadership dependent. What's the makeup of the leadership look like? Oftentimes, you have certain people on the leadership team who are really bought into this change in this new direction. Certain yeah. people who are resistors or detractors. And again, you're getting into their head and trying to figure out what the motivation is behind behind both, right? Yeah. Like because yeah. you can have people who are really gung ho about it, and to your point, have no practical expectations about how long it's actually going to take. Yeah. And you can have people who are detractors, but not actually logically detracting, just, you know, trying to throw their weight around or, you know, have large egos in the room or whatever reason it might be. And so you're trying to map that out a little bit for yourself as the like consultant. But, you know, I will say that it's really important to get um, the right team together to lead the change at all levels. And I think yeah. this is this is something that we've seen quite a bit is that when it when we do have a really enthusiastic senior level sponsor of, of some big innovation initiative, um, it's really great because they the whole organization kind of realizes that's where you're going, but it doesn't necessarily mean you get that frontline buy-in on the details or the like implementation right. And it goes back to that McKinsey study about like, if we don't get the people who are actually doing the work yeah. bought in on this new direction, yeah, it's not really going to be successful. Let me, and let me give you one specific example, because this is something we've tackled in a few different contexts, which is the big, big idea of digital transformation, right? Yeah. We can, we can use technology to create new areas of value, new innovation initiatives, new products. We've done this in a few different ways with a few different clients. Sometimes it's launch, launching a new product, new business service, but oftentimes it's some kind of efficiency we're creating with the new system, some kind of um, you know marketing automation or um, new CRM or whatever it happens to be with that organization. But yeah. the, the thing that we underestimate about technology is, again, all the cultural aspects around it. We can't just do the system implementation and then expect everyone to know how to do it know what the or know what the implement um uh, what that means for their job right yeah. um not be afraid of it because they know that this thing over here worked for many years and now you're asking me to work a completely different way yeah you know there's there's lots of those kinds of considerations so you could have a cmo a cto or even a ceo over here talking about we're going to innovate we're going to create you know all of these we're moving into the future they'll use this big kind of you know uh language and then you can have a lower level e-commerce manager, whoever it is, or, you know, I've worked with a lot of non-profits. They'll have like development people who are being asked to do more digital fundraising. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, I mean, that all sounds great, but I don't really know how to do that. And I know I'm going to be held to my numbers. And so I'm just going to keep like slyly doing this yeah. thing over here, you know, <laughs> so you don't see the behavior change that you actually want to see when it becomes very top down like that. Okay. Um, so what about, again, when, you know, looking to the future a little bit, what, yeah. what kind of skills um, do you think, not think, do you see that is really important to have like in five to 10 years when you're doing this change management? Tell us oh, about the future. I love this question um, because I, I always had debates with my, and again, I come from a digital strategy background. So I always have debates with my more tech friendly friends about things like the need to code or the need to, you know, learn certain specific languages, or even, even when you look at things like data analytics, 
trying to fig- try to forecast out where you're going to be able to find long-term efficiencies in those things and where yeah. you're going to need very specialized skill sets is always really tough. So like when I, when I started my career 10 ish years ago, this was, um, I was, uh, you know, leading a digital strategy uh, team and I had tons of people saying, we got to learn, we got to teach people how to code, you know, we got to bring, build coding into, into STEM education. Yeah. But you still, still see that quite a bit. But what you also see is that there are lots of plug and play type development suites now where you can do 90% of what a coder could with just like moving boxes around on the screen. Yeah. Even you can even do app development without knowing how to code now. Yeah. And so there's specialized things that we still really need that skill set for, like database management and really kind of complicated websites. But the vast majority of the public can build a website really easily now yeah. where they couldn't 20 years ago, right? Yeah. Um, so trying to forecast out those kind of technical skills and trying to guess where things like data analytics, again, are going to be automated versus needing kind of specialized um, analytical skills. I always prioritize the things that are are going to be timeless and aren't going to be automated anytime soon. So yeah. curiosity, creativity, critical thinking. Yeah. Um, it's one of the reasons why I love doing work in the org development and change management space, even though I come from a technology background, because I realize that the technology is always going to change, right? Like yeah. we're always, always going to be some new innovation. There's always going to be something new, new area of value that technology is going to create for the, for an organization that is going to cause us to com- work completely different. Yeah. What's not going to change is that people are going to resist it. We're going to need to train people up. We're going to need to build leadership capability around it. You know, like all of those things I think are really important. And so if I was giving advice and, and I often am asked to give advice to people kind of entering the workforce, yeah, prioritize those kinds of intangible things, yeah. critical thinking skills, relationships, networking skills, um, creativity. Um, yeah. those, those are the kind of things that are much harder to replace. Yeah. You can't just YouTube that. Creativity. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to go back to what you said before with, with, you know, with the tools and how you implement them. Have, mm-hmm. have you, and I'm sure you have some, but I have to ask, have you seen where you, know, you implement this tool and it in different teams that needs to use it, but suddenly it's like the ownership of it, it's difficult because everybody owns like a, a part, right? It could be a CRM system. It's like, no, that's somebody in sales implemented it. Oh, no, marketing implemented it. Um, and it's actually a tool for both. Right. Um, so w- what kind of advice have you seen? So it's, it's like, it's like a we tool. <laughs> no, yeah. so they both own it. Um, is it, do they, yeah, I don't, I, I want to hear your input here. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it, it reminds me of a client project we did mo- very recently where we were working with a product team and I'm not going to name the client, but we discovered that, <clears throat> excuse me, we discovered that a lot of the product decisions had been made, but no one could quite identify who made them. Yeah. So we talked to um, like business folks, we talked to designers, UX strategists, we talked to marketing, we talked to technology, and everyone was (laughs) kind of like, well, we just do what this department says. And then like, oh, well, we do that. But engineering is the one that really does it. And we realized that everyone was kind of, there was like a dysfunctional organizational thing happening where no one could really figure out who made the decision that they're all following. It was fascinating. Yeah. I mean, in, in a perfect world, there's a, a product leader and a 
an executive sponsor of any kind of kind of big technology initiative, right? And so yeah. you've got uh, ownership from a sponsorship level, and you've got ownership from an actual like in the weeds, like I'm the one who knows all the details of this kind of big implementation. It doesn't always work like that because, you know, obviously different organizations of different scales have different capacities. Yeah. If you're not a tech, you know, enabled firm or a tech tech company, even the word product carries with it different kinds of baggage. So, you know, it really, it, it there's usually a version of that at, at every organization. But if there isn't, especially if there isn't an, an actual like named product leader or yeah. more often what I've seen is there is a named product leader, but it gets implemented and then that person leaves yeah. for whatever reason. And then it's kind of just held out in the ether and people forget why any of the decisions were made or like why yeah. it was implemented the way it was. Yeah. No, no, no. Well, it's, it, that's good. Yeah. I, I think I've just seen it, right. It's like the ownership of it. And, and it, it's just the, it's back to the communication as well, right. Communicate and understand why we're using this tool together. Um, 100%. So, no, no, no. Um, okay, so we talked about the future. Let's look a little bit back. So if you have to, you know, tell yourself uh, or give yourself an advice and look like maybe 10 years ago, what kind of advice would you give yourself? <laughs> Besides for like fashion advice or oh, yeah, geez, how to raise kids. And why, like yeah, <laughs> there's no recipe yeah. for that. Come on. Because <laughs> they have a 13-year-old now. I probably tell, you know, when I have a three-year-old, I probably, there's lots I would want to teach my my old self. Um <laughs> Be more patient. No. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, that's such a good question. I mean, I definitely think there was a, I had a naivete about the impact of technology on society and business that would, it would always be positive. Yeah. And I think that this is, this partly comes out of my experience working in politics, but even after that, I think I've become much more sober about, oh, this can go either way. And it can go either really wrong or really right very quickly. Yeah. And we don't think about the cascading effects of technology on business, on society, or on our own individual mental health, for example. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that I think I would be, I teach my younger self to be a lot more sober about. Um, I think that I would <laughs> put more investment in training myself in certain areas around um what what am i thinking let me see if i can put this into words um around long-term relationship development like i i think it was about 10 years ago for myself and my own career where i started to prioritize networking more yeah and started to really like prioritize it in a way where it wasn't just collecting a lot of names on paper. Like there's a lot of people on LinkedIn, for example, where they're just trying to get as many connections as possible. Yeah. I've always tried to prioritize quality over quantity. I think that I started doing that about 10 years ago when I realized that, oh man, there's so many people I can get to know on the internet, but there's a lot of noise. Yeah. And there's so many people I can go to a networking event and learn and get to know, but that also has a lot of noise. Oh yeah. So how do I, how do I like do scale, but do scale while maintaining quality, like get to know people like you who are brilliant and like somebody I want to know for a long time and maintain relationships with them over time using technology, whereas yeah. it would have been hard to do that in, in previous eras. 
I think that I, I w- would have started doing that earlier in my career because the net benefits of that over time just accumulate, right? Like you yeah. get to, you get but to technology know has also people. changed a lot, right? Over the last 10 years to make 100%. it easier to have a connection that's like worldwide, right? So yeah. that helps you as well. I mean, this is, this is a, again, pandemic leaps and bounds forward, right? And yeah. on yeah. that exact thing in yeah. terms of our comfortability or comfortability, just made up a word, Com- comfort comfortableness, comfort, comfort, Friday (laughs) afternoon brain, our comfort with being on zoom or doing these kinds of virtual meetings. Um, I think that's helped create, you know, new areas of value for that kind of global collaboration. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, no, I, and I, I, with my network as well, I'm just, I'm so happy that everybody's getting used to technologies in just different ways, but I have a lot of different apps on my phone because everybody's using, you know, different apps. Right. But again, it makes it just much easier. I Um, imagine you have a really interesting perspective on that as more of a global citizen, right? Like seeing seeing how it happens here in the States where we tend to be a little insular versus, you know, I've got clients and that I've worked with in Dubai and and really interesting contacts in Australia and, and Brazil. And like the, the, the technology they rely on, the cultural differences with yeah. technology. It's just so fascinating to me. Yeah, I, I think so from Europe, right? You, you cannot write a check there, but here you can still write a check. Yeah. Yeah. So I wish you couldn't. Sometimes yeah. I'm like, oh, why were you still doing this? But yeah, yeah, right. Come on. Let's let's leave that into the yeah. future as well. No. Um, so if there's any of the listeners that want to reach out to you or find you, how, how can they find you? Uh, calebgardner.com is probably the best way there's, you know, you can connect with me across social media there. I'm probably ridiculously, honestly, easy to, to get a hold of on any given day on like Twitter, for example, <laughs> which I'm at Caleb Gardner. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of my, my central hub these days. It talks about my, my speaking, my book, my, you know, day-to-day consulting work. So you'll find that. Okay, perfect. And I will add that to the show notes and, and I will also put it on the mindinnovation.com. So it's easy to find. So thank you so much, Caleb, for being here today. It was, I, I had a, I had, this was fun. This was fun to talk about the change because it's not easy. And I don't think it's, that's not a one answer to everything here. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. If you enjoy this podcast, maybe you'd like to hear more, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure also to check out our website, mindtheinnovation.com. And remember, stay curious and keep learning.